According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures, Matthew 22, as well as Mark 12 and uh, Luke chapter 10. We're returning to the study we began last week related to the uh, Pharisees' final attempt to try to catch the Lord in something. There's been a lot of back and forth on this particular day. Remember, we are in the midst of Wednesday in the uh, Passion Week, and uh, he's already put the Sadducees to uh, uh, to shame, and in the aftermath of that, the Pharisees got a little emboldened to, uh, to try to take one more shot at it, and uh, so that's what we're dealing with here today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure as believer priests we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are humble under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for the privilege and blessing that it is for us to come together. Father, we thank you for the Life of Christ series. Of all the Bible classes that we teach around here, this is a, it's a very special class, Father, and I appreciate the time that it's been and over many years to uh, week by week take a look at each uh, unfolding chapter, each episode in our Lord's ministry, and, and uh, Father, in particular now in the Passion Week as we're uh, headed towards the cross, Father, it's, uh, it's important that we uh, study to show ourselves approved, that we learn, that we observe from his example, Father, how we deal with conflict, how we deal with testing, how we deal with adversaries, and, uh, Father, how we might be truly uh, Christ-like with our thinking, with our words, with our deeds. So, Father, open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty, let's look at verses 34 through 40 here in Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. You know, this was uh, exciting. Man, he silenced the Sadducees. Awesome. And uh, taking pleasure in the uh, humiliation of their opponents. Now they think that they can really um, score some points. And so they gathered themselves together. They're actually going to assemble the largest group of Pharisees that uh, ever came uh, at one time to uh, ask the Lord a question. And so one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. All right, so there we have it. And uh, then he's going to turn the tables on him in the next episode when you get to verse 41 and, uh, and uh, ask them a question that uh, they either can't answer or choose not to answer because they're afraid of what the answer might be. And uh, we'll tackle that next week in, uh, in episode number 9. All right, let's turn over now to Mark chapter 12. The ending there in Matthew is a little bit abrupt. There actually is a follow-up with an individual, not the lawyer, but the scribe. Mark chapter 12. Verse 28 says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? And so these are some of the details that we glean, some differences that we glean. Pharisees on the one hand, scribe on the other hand, uh, hearing that the Sadducees were silenced, hearing that Jesus answered them well. And uh, the one appears to be very adversarial and negative. The other appears to be actually very humble and very positive. And so I think as we reconcile this, we understand that there's a large group that's coming to ask the Lord this question. Out of that large group, one of them is this very confrontational Pharisee. And another one in that same large group is uh, a very positive and hungry scribe. And that's what we see here in the Mark account. Mark also records a larger answer. Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Uh, that the Lord actually cited the Jewish Shema before he went on to cite the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater 
than these. Then there's actually a follow-up with the scribe himself who has a contribution to make in verse 32. And so we'll be tackling that this hour. Um, We didn't get that far last week. So that's kind of where we're going to pick it up. The uh, points of study that we gave under point one, the humiliation of the Sadducees emboldened the Pharisees to form their largest group yet for an encounter with Jesus. And uh, typically in the past, when the Pharisees came to him, they come to him one on one or the most, maybe a couple of Pharisees would come together. Uh, But sometimes they would come to him just one on one and they would come in secret. They would come at night. They would come because they didn't want their fellow Pharisees to know that they were going to talk to that uh, Galilean fisherman and that Galilean carpenter, as it were. So uh, the largest group yet. I believe that uh, Matthew and Mark record two different individuals. So one of this group was a lawyer who viewed the group's question as a temptation. In his mind, the whole point of asking this question was to try to find something to trip him up. And the word perazzo is used in the Mark record, the uh, the Matthew account, I should say. The word perazzo, which we understand to be the temptation term that is seeking the fall, seeking the failure, looking to find some uh, opportunity to bring somebody down. We don't have that in Mark. The motivation appears to be different in Mark, and the character appears to be different in Mark. He's called a scribe. Another of this group is a scribe, and he identified the Lord as one who answered well. Not that he shut the Sadducees up, but he gave a well answer. He gave a good answer. And so, in my view, I think that it's best to reconcile these as two separate individuals. Uh, It is possible that it's the same guy. There are some scribes who are also Pharisees, and some Pharisees, uh, uh, they didn't have to be the same. They could have been different. I think they're different. And uh, we're just going to proceed forward on that. On that basis, the assumption doesn't really modify the, the meaning of the text anyway. So it's just one way to reconcile, to harmonize the two passages. Now, there had been a previous episode, and I give this to you under point two, back during the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus Christ, episode number eight in that ministry. Uh, there was also a lawyer that appeared to him, and this was a lawyer who was not asking what the greatest commandment was. He was a lawyer who was saying, hey, I think I've earned my way to heaven. <laughs> what must I do to, to have eternal life, to receive eternal life? And so Jesus then turned it around and said, well, what does it read to you? What do you think? And he said, well, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he kind of combined those verses and gave that as his answer, uh, believing that if he does that, then he will have earned his way to heaven. And Jesus, in Luke 10, uh, verses 25 and following, go ahead and turn there. That's, that's the one account we haven't read yet. That's the one gospel account we haven't read yet. We could also turn to Deuteronomy and see the original. But Luke 10. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test. So we have something very similar to the Matthew record for our episode today. First of all, it's a lawyer. Secondly, there's perazzo temptation going on. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a difference from the Matthew record. Uh, He's not asking what the greatest commandment is. He's asking about earning his way to heaven. And so Jesus answers the question with a question. Is it all right to do that? Why not? And so he answers a question with a question. And he says, well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? You know, if you think it's possible, what are you doing? And so he answered. and, And in this answer, he conflates. The Deuteronomy, loving the Lord your God, and the Leviticus passage about loving your neighbor. And he, confl- he conflates uh, Luke, uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 with Leviticus 19.18. So he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't really distinguish. He doesn't say there are two commandments, does he? No. He just kind of lumps it all together into an overall um, synthesis. And he thinks that if he does this, then, then he will earn eternal life. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All right, which we discussed at the time is not an admission that anybody can earn their way to heaven, but is Jesus uh, answering for the sake of argument uh, for a moment saying, uh, okay, yes, do that and you can earn your way to heaven. All right. And then by teaching the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and talking about who your neighbor is and highlighting, making it very clear that no one can earn their way to heaven. Okay? 
Um, so we might do the same thing in our own apologetic ministry, our own evangelism. If there's someone trying to earn their way there, just say, yeah, you can earn your way there. If you're sinless and perfect, 100% for your entire life, right? Yeah, you can earn your way there. Um, which obviously they can't. And uh, we have the doctoral understanding that knows that. But occasionally it's called for the sake of argument. For the sake of argument, you let something slide for a moment and say, all right, let's just say that's true. What does that mean? You know, and, and walk them through it. And then when you walk them through it, then you can come back and follow up and say, you know what, that first assumption isn't right, is it? I can't earn my way to heaven, can I? And you find it's a very uh, effective means of communication. Now, the questions we cannot answer, we're only left to speculate, is this the same lawyer uh, that has given this Deuteronomy-Leviticus blend in Luke 10? Is it the same lawyer now that's coming back as a part of this Pharisee delegation and asking what's the greatest commandment in Matthew um, 22. In which case, when the Lord gives them those very two commands right back to him, then the Lord would be repeating to him something that he had said earlier. Uh, or we also are left to wonder, is how often did Jesus actually teach this message? Did he teach this message repeatedly? Uh, is, is the reason for the distinctions between the word order and some of the vocabulary that's used between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, and Deuteronomy is the, is the vocabulary difference because he has given this message so many times that invariably uh, the words are different each time that he speaks it and, and there's slight differences or variations each time that he teaches it. And so if, in fact, he has taught it repeatedly, then is it not possible that the lawyer in Luke 10 was actually... Um, was actually repeating some of Jesus' teaching in that uh, that conflation. We don't know. We don't know. But did the lawyer in Luke, did he blend Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 in his own synthesis? Did he do that himself? Okay. Because I'll tell you, it's not, it's not intuitive. It's not natural. It's not, there's nothing in, of course, Leviticus was written first. And so there's nothing then written in Deuteronomy once the you shall love your Lord, the Lord your God passage gets written in Deuteronomy 6.5. There's nothing there that would cause you to go back to Leviticus and combine those verses. Okay? And, and, and I want to really stress this today. I know I did last week, but I just really want to stress this. Um, part of rightly dividing the word of truth and part of comparing Scripture with Scripture is making the proper associations of this passage to this passage and why you're connecting them, all right? And not just some kind of a random thing. You can't just say, okay, well, um, random page here, Romans 15, 18. I will not presume to speak of anything except Christ. Okay, got that. And Psalm 113, 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay. Now, that's really rather random, right? Would I, would I want to build a doctrine out of connecting those two verses? Is there any reason to connect those two verses? Okay. Or was it just a random page flipping? Was it just a random? Now, please understand, both verses are absolutely true. And they should be taught as absolutely true. But they should not necessarily be taught as linked and connected. Unless there's a doctrinal reason, a valid doctrinal reason to connect them. You understand? And this is, this is where the, the wisdom of, of hermeneutics comes in, the wisdom of, of just doctrinal understanding comes in, understanding the whole counsel of God's Word. All right? So the lawyer who, who blended those verses and who didn't even keep them distinct, he didn't even say that there were two different uh, commands. He just added, and your neighbor as yourself, attached that to the end of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So it's almost like he drafted his own brand new Bible verse by combining Deuteronomy 6, 5 with Leviticus 19, 18. So was that his own synthesis or was he at that time actually quoting a prior message that the Lord had given? We don't know. There's no gospel record that the Lord had ever done that before. So these are just simply questions that we have to leave unanswered, but we should at least consider that when Jesus links these, he has linked them in a way like the lawyer linked them back in Luke 10. All right, so then thirdly, we uh, ended by discussing the Jewish background for this question. Why would we even try to find one great commandment? Well, it was an exercise they did actually quite frequently. 
there were 613 separate commandments in the law, of which 365 were negative, thou shalt not. 248 were positive, thou shalt. Okay? And um, they even distinguished them between the heavy ones and the light ones, kind of classifying them in their own mind. But then, the third thing they did was they tried to find a, an overall command, an overall uh, to sum up the entire law in a single command, where if you, could, if you could obey this single unifying command, then you were obeying all 613, right? It's kind of like what physicists are doing today and, and, uh, and um, philosophers are doing today, trying to find a unified theory of everything. They're trying to find, because there, there, there are still some unresolved matters that quantum physics doesn't, doesn't fix. And so there's still questions as it relates to time, as it relates to magnetism, as it relates to the speed of light. And, 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 and so because they've got all these puzzles, they're left with kind of um, band-aids, right, patchwork. And they, so they kind of they come up with quirks and they come up with uh, wormholes and they come up with an assortment of other things. And they're not really happy over the fact that they've got this kind of, uh, um, uh, what shall I call it, golden corral approach to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just kind of a smorgasbord of, of just a little bit of everything spread out everywhere. And so what they would really like to do is they would really like to have, find a single unifying theory that just that they can wrap their minds around and say, this is it. This is our physics without God. <laughs> this will make us happy. Okay. Well, I think that's by and large what the rabbis were doing in the ancient world, trying to find a single unifying, um, not not uh, theory of physics, but a single unifying command, not a Mosaic command, because the Mosaic commands are 613, but to try to find a single unifying uh, rabbinic command that could then be labeled by the rabbi who created it, right? And so, yes, you would have the laws of Moses, with all those, but then, oh, the glory of Gamaliel to give the one overall command or the glory of Hillel or the glory of Shammai or whichever rabbi uh, invents the, the uh, single unifying command. This was Hillel's approach. He uh, created a, uh, he felt the whole law was summed up with uh, really a form of the golden rule. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. He says, that's it. That's the law. Everything else is commentary. Uh, that is the whole Torah, while the rest is commentary thereof. So he just boiled it all down to uh, don't do to your neighbor what, uh, what is hateful to you. So, Which is kind of a golden rule expressed as a negative. And uh, some people think Jesus ripped him off when uh, <laughs> Jesus cited the scriptures. But anyway, this is the Jewish background for the question. When Jesus is asked for the greatest commandment, he answers with the greatest and second greatest. And I think that's interesting as well. They want one, he's going to give them two. And uh, they are related uh, in an interesting way. It is Deuteronomy combined with Leviticus. And as the Lord does this, he, uh, he really doesn't invent something new in the sense. The Ten Commandments did the same thing. You know, your first four commandments are God word. And then your last six commandments are kind of man word about stealing and adultery and stuff like that. So uh, it's in a sense, we do relate to God, we do relate to man, and we ought to have two different uh, approaches to what we're doing. We already commented on the fact that his answer is identical to the answer the lawyer provided. Not quite verbatim, but in concept, he does. Not teaching it as a works-based salvation, very important that we understand that. But teaching it, he's not saying that if you do these two commandments, you can earn your way to heaven. But he is saying that these two commandments do give you the, the foundation of what law is all about. That at its foundation, a dependent foundation, this is Mosaic law. This is Mosaic law. And uh, so that's, that is different than trying to earn your way to heaven. All right. New material then. Commandment number one comes from the Jewish Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. And since we looked at all three of the Gospels, let's turn to Deuteronomy 6.4 and look at that. This is based on the Jewish Shema, their statement, Hear, O Israel. Shema means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
And this was their, uh, they would, to this day, Jewish people recite this. Once in the morning, once in the evening. This is their great confession. This is what it means to be Jewish. Uh, regardless of whether you're conservative, orthodox, wear the black hat, have the long beard, or whether you're liberal, uh, don't really believe there is a God, but you have a, a kind of a racial heritage and tradition. Uh, it doesn't matter. From the flaming liberals to the hardcore conservatives, what it means to be Jewish is to cite this Shema. And they, and they, they cite this daily. Hero Israel. All right. And then with that call to worship then comes, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Heart, soul, and might. And um, if we have time at the end of this hour, I'll go ahead and bring up the Arnold Fruit and Bomb articles. It's I find it's interesting uh, as it relates to Trinity and as it relates to uh, how Jewish people will reject the Christian doctrine of Trinity because of, of the Shema. And they, uh, Arnold's got some good articles related to that. If we have time today, I'll take you through that. But you will love, you shall love Yahweh, your Elohim. Okay. And uh, this follows, of course, the Shema, Yahweh, our Elohim. Uh, Yahweh is our God. He is our God. And... Um, and so the imperative then is that you shall love Yahweh, your Elohim. The nations had all their gods. Israel has one God. Uh, and uh, even though Elohim is plural, he's still an is, is still a, a singular. And uh, he's personal in the name of Yahweh, and that's who they worship. Heart, soul, and might. Nothing really complicated about this vocabulary. Heart, soul, and might. From the Hebrew, you got lavav, you got nephesh. The interesting one is ma'od. Because ma'od is, uh, is an adverb. Uh, when it's brought into the Greek in the Septuagint, you got, as you might expect, you got cardia and suke, and then dunamis. Dunamis, our word for power. That's uh, what the ma'od is rendered. Interestingly enough, none of the gospel records will use dunamis, which we'll see here shortly. Uh, even though they add, um, this is threefold, okay? Heart, soul, might, uh, might okay? Or very everything your heart your soul your everything um your heart your soul your might uh even though the new testament has might it has mind heart soul mind and strength heart soul strength and mind um and even though it has strength it you it does not use dunamis and then when it adds mind why is it adding mind when mind isn't in is not in uh, the Hebrew or the Greek text here of Deuteronomy. And that's, it, it forms an amazing puzzle and one that uh, has, trust me, no shortage of uh, commentary and, uh, and different things. Um, we're going to be relaxed about it. I'll give you some of the, the uh, items here, but we're going to be relaxed about it, I think, as far as our purposes today are concerned. Um, so, Lavab, heart, that's your core, that's your innermost being, that's the real you. You know, at your heart, who are you? You know, you might be a, you might have a, a, an external show, but at your heart, who are you? And that's what we talk about, the real you. It's the innermost being, um, the inner man as opposed to the outer man. The soul is related to the heart. They are connected. They're not purely synonyms, but they are connected. And at, your heart will influence your soul. So if your heart is still the unregenerate heart of the unbeliever, then that is like gangrene is poisoning your soul. You understand. But when God creates in you a new heart, when he creates in you a clean heart, then that's a benefit to your soul. And that's how we draw it. Oftentimes when I draw my um, diagrams, I, mean, I haven't used this in years, but when I draw my diagrams, I will draw a circle representing the soul spirit, right, as a unity, and then a line between the two. Okay. Are you following this or do I need to draw it? I can draw. All right. Um he said, Pastor, your artwork scares me. Well, okay, just draw a circle and then draw a line down the circle. And you've got soul on one side, spirit on the other side. Okay, got that? And uh, Hebrews talks about there's a dividing asunder between soul and spirit. Now, for the unbeliever, that the spirit is dead. It's a dead thing. Uh, and it comes alive. It's made alive in Christ. That's what the new birth is, being born from above, being born again, being born of the Father, uh, being spiritually born, that spirit side of the soul spirit comes alive but what is that dividing asunder between the two and as i draw that line between the two in the middle of that line i usually put a little uh circle like a 
cherry pit or a plum pit, right? Or whatever Shirley just said, okay? And, uh, and that's, that's where I, when I diagram the heart, that's where I diagram the heart, okay? I diagram the heart. It's not the soul, it's not the spirit, but it's connected to both. And it actually is the core. It actually is the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. So when the word of God pierces, where does it pierce? It pierces the heart. It pierces the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It, it's a, and it's a critical judge of what? The thoughts and intents of the heart. See, I believe that, that Hebrews defines what that defining spirit is, what that dividing asunder is. It defines it as the heart. So when I draw my diagram of, of the invisible aspects of humanity, that's how I draw it out. So loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your ma'od, is interesting because the ma'od is, is an adverb that speaks of everything, okay, a totality. And, uh, and so I think rather than bringing it across as a power or a, a mind or a different thing, that we could even bring it across as a spirit. Why don't we love the Lord God in our spirit? We're to worship him in spirit and in truth and uh, different things there. All right, nephesh is soul. And uh, the Greek suke, and then ma'od and dunamis. Now, here's what the Gospels do under point C. In Matthew 22:37, he lists heart, soul, and mind. Heart, soul, and mind. And um, and and if you want to draw these in columns, if columns help you, I almost did a diagram where they were in parallel columns. Sometimes columns help. Sometimes just words are fine. However you want to do it. Uh, but heart, soul, and mind is how uh, it's cited in Matthew 22:37. That's cardia, suke, in agreement with the Septuagint. But uh, it then uses dianoia for mind or for thinking. Dianoia. The noose is the mind. And so what do you do through the mind? Dianoia. Uh, through the mind is thinking. And uh, that's how it's translated there in Matthew. Heart, soul, and mind. So is this... Um, this, this kind of addresses part of what we deal with every single time the Old Testament is cited in the New Testament. Is it a Hebrew quotation? Is it a Greek quotation? Is it a, a by-memory paraphrase? Okay. In which case you always have a word or two that's slightly off. Um, and do we view that as a problem? Well, we don't if we assume that the Holy Spirit is inspiring Matthew just like the Holy Spirit inspired Deuteronomy. Say. And we're okay with varieties in lists like this. We're all right with, um, for example, the fruit of the Spirit and realizing that it's not an exhaustive list because it goes on to say, against such there is no law. Okay? Meaning that, okay, we've got a list, but it's representative, it's not exhaustive. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, or all your heart, soul, and might, is that an exhaustive list? Are there other things I could love the Lord God with? Well, um, it's not on the list. I, I'm not allowed to love God with my, with my soul or with my spirit because spirit's not on the list. Soul's on the list, but spirit's not on the list. Okay? That's what I'm trying to get us to realize. These lists are not exhaustive. And if we love the Lord with something beyond, that's okay. See, it's not a violation of this. All right, so that's the Matthew account. In Mark, it's heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Mark's account is, uh, in Mark 12.30, has the same cardia, psuche, and dianoia that, uh, that Matthew has. Uh, dianoia is number 1271, I'll tell you that. Uh, it has the same cardia, psuche, and dianoia that Matthew has, but then it adds iscus for strength. Iscus, I-S-C-H-U-S, 2479. And it doesn't use the dunamis that uh, the Septuagint has. There are some people that are really worked up about that. Okay. Then in um, Luke, when the Pharisee was, or when the lawyer was trying to prove how he was worthy of, of inheriting eternal life, he used it as the order of heart, soul, strength, and mind. So he inverted the term strength and mind using, again, iscus and, uh, and dianoia, like we have in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. So these are the... These are the varieties of what we deal with. And this, this becomes a puzzle. And this is something that linguists do. This is something that, uh, you know, um, 
Wasn't it fun having having Titus here the last couple of weeks? You know, just if nothing else, I'm thankful that there are people like that. I'm thankful that there are people who will spend 20 years looking at pottery, okay? Or they will they will scour they will scour every use of dianoia that's ever found in any pagan literature, okay? Or or just you know their whole lives are dedicated to things that we think are just obscure or they're esoteric or they're they're just kind of um uh you wonder is it a waste of time why are they spending so much time and yet when it's done they've produced data that other people can make use of and so it benefits pastors it benefits believers it benefits churches and we should be uh we should be thankful for that so there are people that have dedicated decades to this very issue uh trying to determine the textual transmission and trying to determine how did one lead to the other, trying to determine, uh, you know, who changed the word from dunamis to iskus and why, uh, how in the world did, did dianoia get added when dianoia isn't in, uh, isn't in the, the Septuagint and, uh, and different aspects there. And it's, it's clearly, it's a lot more than I want to get into in this class, to be honest. Um, but let me just say that this is, in my thinking, a tremendous illustration for how we uh, relax when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament because, why? I said it a minute ago, the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament as well. And so this becomes our commentary on that. We're not, we're not worried about something being corrupted or something being wrong or something being unreliable and things of that nature. Let's get back to uh, Mark and let's look at something else here that uh, if, if you're not already relaxed, uh, either will really drive you off a cliff or uh, say, you know what, maybe, maybe I, need to be, uh, I need to recognize what's happening here. Let's look at the response of this scribe. Uh, again, in the ordering here in Mark, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at the scribe's response in verse 32. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, this excited scribe did something there. I don't know if you noticed it or not. But to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding. Well, where did that come from? All right. So I'll give that to you in point D. The lawyer adds an additional term. The lawyer adds understanding. He adds sunesis. The Greek word sunesis. S-U-N-E-S-I-S. Another thinking term in terms of putting it all together. Right? Your soon prefix meaning together. So whenever you, whenever it all comes together for you, we say you have understanding. Right? It all came together. I was, I was puzzled. It, was, it wasn't making any sense. I had all these thoughts and uh, information and it just didn't make any sense. I couldn't understand it. But then it all came together. Okay. Now I understand it. And so the lawyer adds an additional term. He adds understanding. Now, what I think what we have here, and I'll give it to you under point E, the variety of expressions. What is this indicating? The variety of expressions indicates a multiplicity in spoken messages. I don't think there's any question that this is a message that he'd given several times. A multiplicity in spoken messages. And... You might want to write this down word for word because it's, I'm going to coin this expression and when other pastors start using it, I want the trademark uh, copyright to it. A non-precisional apprehension of the principle. A non-precisional apprehension of the principle. In other words, we are making allowances for the terms to not be used in a precise, uh, formulaic way. All right. 
And uh, you got to be cautious with this. I got to be cautious with this. We all got to be cautious with this, because obviously the every um, every uh, heresy that's ever come along has come along by people playing fast and loose with what the Bible says, right? And being loosey goosey with different terms in the Bible, and just saying, well, you know, it says that, but it doesn't really mean that, and, and just being being sloppy with a text, okay? not what we're doing here. It's not what we're doing here, but it's we want to identify, well, what is the Scripture doing here? In what way would we, would we say that precision is not called for if the text itself um, does not demand it or if the text itself actually precludes it? Then I think we're wrong to take a, an imprecise text and insist upon formulaic precision. Okay, and here's how I'm, I'll explain this. A multiplicity in spoken messages and a non-precisional apprehension in the principle. In other words, because it's in different order, it's, the order is not important. Okay, and because it's not an exhaustive list and an item might get added like understanding or an item might get added like mind, all right, it's not an exhaustive list. Okay. And when you have clues in the text that will make allowances for that, then you're not defying the Scripture for operating within the allowances of, of what the text itself is using. So, it, it would it, it's just no different than how we handle any text, truly. If, if, um, if, if the Lord is speaking in metaphor, like He says, I am the door, we're okay with that. And we accept it as the Lord speaking in metaphor. And we don't want to take and use it precisely, use it literally, use it as something it's not designed to be, and say, hey, the Lord's got a handle and a couple of hinges, and, and, uh, <laughs> and he blocks entrance into things. He's not a literal door. So to handle a metaphor metaphorically, handle a parable parabolically, handle poetry poetically, handle non-precisional principles as a non-precisional principle. And so you can relax about word order or you can relax about the addition of, a, of, an, of an idea, the addition of a term. So a non-precisional apprehension of the principle. And that's, that's uh, a term I've I, I put together after a lot of thought and consideration. I think I'm going to probably make use of it in the future with some consistency so that we get used to seeing it and get used to thinking about it. Um, that when the scripture, it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a parable, for example. A parable teaches one main point. And that's all it's designed to do is teach one main point. It's not designed to have every single little detail, every jot and tittle is supposed to have some kind of an equivalent, Right? It's supposed to teach one main point. But some people get all buggy about um, taking a... What's your favorite parable? You got, you got a favorite parable you like? Good Samaritan, yeah, yeah. And try to find... Uh, uh, and, and that's the parable teaching about loving your neighbor, right? And the principle is, who's my neighbor? And it's everybody, even your worst enemy. Okay, That's the big idea. The parable is supposed to teach the big idea. But I can find books written and people that have... that that are trying to find every little tittle with a, with a significance. The innkeeper has a significance. He represents whatever. And the, the scribe has a significance. The Pharisee has a significance. And the oil has a significance. And the, 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 the dollar, and even the road to Jericho. And Stop. That's not what parables do. Okay. Likewise, this is, uh, this is not a parable, but this is a use of the Old Testament to bring it forward into uh, an application. And, uh, and so we ought to be able to relax that if, it's, if the words are out of order or if we add another, a word that's not in the original Deuteronomy, are we somehow violating the, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture? Um, things of that nature. So hopefully this will uh, be an aid to us to not be trapped by a rigid wooden literal hermeneutic that defies the uh, the true literal hermeneutic that we pursue. All right. That's all I guess that's all I'll say on that. We have a second commandment though. Beyond loving the Lord your God, 
And uh, I think last week we spoke significantly about the difference between wholehearted and half-hearted or uh, dual-hearted or anything like that, the double-minded man, things of that nature. But we shall love our fellow man. We shall love one another. And um, love your neighbor. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, love your neighbor, I'm cool with that. Yeah, that's great. Love your neighbor, got it. Makes sense. Even once I know who my neighbor is, okay, cool. Love my neighbor, got it. But please recognize what it's saying here. The second one is like it. Commandment number two is like commandment number one. It's like commandment number one. What does that mean? What does it mean to be like? What is it? What it what, what's Jesus saying here? Because if, if he's drawing an equivalency, then I, I need to understand what that's like because there's some elements there I don't like as far as an equivalency. Okay? I want to love my neighbor. I want to love my wife. I want to love my church. I want to love my children. I want to love my enemies. I want to love, um, and I, I want to love all them. But shouldn't my love for God be different? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't it be higher? Shouldn't it be the ultimate? Shouldn't the other ones be less? But Jesus said it's like. Now, I want to understand what's like mean now. How, are they, how is it like? Maybe in answering how is it like, will I um, then be able to make a proper application and not feel like somehow I am violating something in terms of what God is unique and in, in what he is entitled to. So what does it mean when it says the second is like it? The second is like it. Well, clearly loving your neighbor is like loving the Lord. Loving your neighbor is like loving the Lord. So failure to do so is a sin. Doing so is expected. It's the essence of why we're here, who we are and what we're doing. There's some for instances of how it could be like loving the Lord, but I think there's more than that. But loving your neighbor is like loving the Lord. So then we ask, okay, how? <laughs> how? Um, well, let me give you some possibilities and we'll consider. Is it, is it like the love for God in terms of its value or its result? Here's a question. So I say, okay, I'm going to love my neighbor, but and, and I'm going to love my neighbor like God, but is it like God in terms of its value? In other words, is it worth reward? Like loving God is worth reward? Is there a value to it? Is, uh, or do they have similar results? What, what happens when I love God? What are the effects of loving God? Yeah. Is it, and what are the effects of loving my neighbor? Are they, are they actually similar because of their result? Um, okay, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing some things out. You're thinking, you're thinking great. And I like the fact that you're thinking great. Uh, the, um, <laughs> I'm going to answer my own question here in a moment. So I, I'm, I'm going to try to be careful. Uh, I, I hate giving stuff away early. You know what I'm saying? And then you think, okay, that was a big waste of time. You could have done that 20 minutes ago. Jeepers. All right. And yet, you know, when you think about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that means there's just nothing left. If it truly is all your strength, then what strength do you have left over? Yeah. Or you could say you have no strength left over because you've used it all. Okay. Uh, if you love the Lord God with all your heart, then what do you have left over to love somebody else? Okay. This is part of the glories of what God's design is that you can give and give and give again and it's never exhausted. It's, it's always, you're always richer for what you've given. You're always stronger. And so when you love the Lord with all your heart, you think, well, then I've got nothing left over. Not true. Because now you can love your neighbor with all your heart. Okay. Mind, soul, strength. 
understanding. So you can think of it in terms of its value. You can think of it in terms of its result. Okay, the value of that love and so forth. Um, we, want, we need to identify, abide these three, faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. So there's a quantitative value of love that's superior to everything else. Uh, God is love. God so loved the world that he gave. We need to understand the preeminence that love has. Um, and even in terms of the, the whole purpose for creation, you understand. God loves his son. And he created other beings who could share that love for his son. Otherwise, there's no need for creation. There's no need for creatures. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit could just continue from eternity past to eternity future and have no time in between. Not necessary if it weren't for the fact that God the Father wanted to multiply that love and share that love and create a body of people, angels and humans, that with the capacity to love his son like he loves his son. So in many respects, love then become the value of love is, is really the whole purpose for all of creation. All right. Uh, do we view the similarities between loving God and loving our neighbor in terms, are they like each other because of the target or the object? And I've read some things where people have tried to make comparisons that way. I think that's actually a flawed approach, but some people consider it. Well, it's like when I, lo- when I love my neighbor, I'm loving God. That they're a similar object because somehow there is, you know, uh, God loves them. God's in them. God saved them. And so uh, I should have that target or that object because that's God's target. That's God's object. And maybe there's something to it. I just find it awkward the way as I've read it in different descriptions. I've found it to be kind of awkward. It hasn't made much sense. Or... Is this the best way to think about the way that we love the Lord our God? Is it the intensity of the love? Is it the methodology? Is it the means? And what we have, when we ask, if we're asking the how question, it's fair to say, well, how was the love for God described? With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay, maybe that's the answer for the how I'm to love my neighbor. And how the love for the two are like each other. Is it because of the intensity of the love? Is it the fervency? Our love for our neighbor must, and I think this is the best way to to relate them as being like one another, that our love for our neighbor must be with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That if we have a half-hearted love for our neighbor, or a half-minded, half-soul, half-strength, or less, you know, anything that's not wholehearted is not like our love for God. It's supposed to be like our love for God. That means we turn the other cheek. That means we go the extra mile. That means we give the shirt off our back. That means that we're loving with all that we have. And if we're holding anything back, if we're withholding anything, then we're not obeying this command. So the value is like our love for God. All right. Now, let's look under point seven then of the scribe's response. The scribe in Mark's account accepts Jesus' teaching and he relates it intelligently. This guy's a thinker. He relates it intelligently to other concepts of grace. The scribe in Mark's account accepts Jesus' teaching and relates it intelligently to other concepts of grace. And uh, it's not my opinion. This is the Lord's opinion. It's recorded in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he, the scribe, had answered intelligently. Ah, wow, you're thinking. You're putting stuff together. And, uh, you know, it's like that Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19 connection. You're, you're putting stuff together. And Jesus praises him for that. This scribe is relating it to other concepts of grace. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. This guy was so close. So close. Because he's putting it together. And he's not going to be trapped by Mosaic law trying to get saved by keeping the law. He's actually approaching the realms of grace and starting to figure out that, wait a minute. 
So we have not only the verses here in Mark 12, verses 32 through 34, but we have the related texts in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Hosea 6, 6, and Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. These were the very passages that Jesus used with Pharisees on earlier occasions, recorded in a couple of places there in Matthew. So let's spend our time. We've got 11 minutes left. Let's spend our time in these. There's also a point eight very quickly, but um, point eight won't take long. Uh, let's let's focus on point seven. He's connecting the, this aspect here to things of grace, loving God, loving your neighbor. Okay. Let's read his answer here again. Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus said that it was the foundation of the law. This man says it's actually more than the law. Yes, it's the foundation, but it's greater than the law. It's more than the law. Well, how could that be? Why is that? Is the law the pinnacle? Legalists think so. That's the realm they think in. But if the law was the pinnacle, then why would there be grace to follow law? If law was the pinnacle, then why would Christ go to the cross? Just keep the law. The law couldn't make the the provision of eternal salvation. That's why we've got the book of Hebrews telling us about the shortcomings of the law and the greater things to come. All right, so what are these other passages then? 1 Samuel 15, 22. How can something be greater than sacrifice? 1 Samuel 15, 22. <clears throat> and this is when Samuel's rebuking Saul. Saul did not destroy the Amalekites. He says he did, but then Samuel says, well, how come I hear all these sheep bleeding? And um, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. The, The obedience is more important than the sacrifice. The sacrifice should be done in obedience. The sacrifice could be done just as a phony external thing, and then what value does that have? None. We saw that on Sunday. God looks upon the heart. You can come and sit in a Bible class. You get brownie points for that. Is there reward in heaven just because you're here? Well, if you're sitting here in darkness and you're daydreaming and you're twiddling your thumbs and you're balancing your checkbook and you're, you're uh, you know, you're logging on to the restaurant website trying to get your table reserved for lunch after class is over, Maybe you're not paying attention to the doctrine, right? Maybe you're not humble under the authority of the Word of God. I would submit that that's not wood. That's not gold, silver, precious stone. You're actually laying up wood, hay, and stubble under those conditions. That's why obedience is important. Without the obedience, then the sacrifice is meaningless. So there's something greater than sacrifice. You you know, if sacrifice is commanded, then you want to obey that command, but you want to obey with the heart where it's supposed to be. Hosea 6.6, the minor prophet Hosea. Who teaches the minor prophets anyway? You mean we're accountable for these obscure books no one ever heard of? Yeah, it's part of all scriptures God read. Then Jesus quoted it repeatedly. Hosea 6.6. Remember, Hosea is Jesus as far as the name goes. All right. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. The external religion, those are commanded. Okay, follow the ritual, follow the commands. But in the ritual, make sure you don't ever depart from the reality. And what did the theme teach? All, you know, I heard it once, I heard it 55,000 times from Pastor Theme. Ritual without reality, right? Meaningless. So that's Hosea 6.6. 6. Uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Another minor prophet. Are you kidding me? Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. 
With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Then he answers in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I think you could probably rewrite that verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the concept, not the word order, not the specific phrase, not the, it's the concept that's being brought across. And if, the, if, if it's repeated in a slightly different way, if it's rephrased with slightly different terms, if it's re-spoken with uh, slightly different uh, expressions, can I do this four or five more times? Okay. You got the, you got the drift. You caught on. You're tracking. You're following. You're getting it. All right. Now see, the Lord tried to teach this, but the problem is legalists will never grasp this because they're, con- they're confusing the means with the ends. They're, to them, the law is everything. And you can actually have a terrible attitude. That's fine. As long as you do what has to be done. <laughs> okay? The Lord tried to point out those two brothers, and one said he'd go work and didn't do it, and one said he wouldn't do it, but actually went up doing it anyway. Okay? Um, talk about a convicting message against the Pharisees. External obedience is everything. Just, you know, do what you have to, and isn't that enough? Matthew 9.13 and Matthew 12.7. In Matthew 9, they're all upset. Uh, The Pharisees say to the disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, that's just unacceptable. That is absolutely unacceptable in a Pharisee mindset. And when Jesus heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and desire what this means. I desire compassion, but not a sacrifice. In other words, he tells these Bible experts to go to a Bible study in Hosea 6. 6. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners are the ones that hear the call. Sinners are the ones that, that are saved. And uh, it's pretty clear that they don't obey him and go and learn what that verse is all about. Because in just three more chapters, in chapter 12, the Pharisees are condemning them again. Your disciples do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're, they're, they became hungry and they're picking the heads of grain as they're walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And then they tell the Lord, look, your disciples do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, well, what about David and that bread he wasn't supposed to eat? He ate it. God didn't kill him. And I says in verse 7, he says, If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. See, you didn't do your homework. I told you back in chapter 9, go and learn what this means. You didn't go and learn what it means. If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. You'd understand they were hungry. They plucked the, the grain. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. And why are they walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath? Because he's walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. They're following him. The Sabbath is supposed to be for walking with the Lord, isn't it? What are they doing? They're walking with the Lord. All right. This event brought the Pharisees' hostile questions to an end, which you read about in Mark 12, 34b. And I think... Uh, I think it's because of the fruitfulness with this lawyer or with this scribe here. You know, he's uh, he's putting two and two together. He's he's just about at four right now. He's he's close. And Jesus says, "You are not far from the kingdom of God." And he tells them uh, when they hear that. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. 
The Pharisees say, oh, we, we just got to quit doing that. These guys are, he's answering questions and guys are listening to him. And the scribe here, we almost lost this scribe. He's, he's close to entering into the kingdom of God. That's not acceptable. As far as these Pharisees are concerned, that's got to be stopped. All right, well, Sadducees question the resurrection. Pharisees question the commandments. Jesus is going to have a question for them. He's going to turn it right back around. He's going to say, all right, I've got a Jesus and David question for you guys. And he gives it to them, and they can't answer it. And then he says, all right, we're done. He'll have one final Bible class for them, and then he'll take his disciples up for the Sermon on the Mount, or for the uh, Medal of a Discourse. So we're getting really, really close to uh, Betrayal Thursday and um, Good Friday coming up. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Your word is truth. Thank you for this study. I pray that we would come to understand how we do love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or is that heart, mind, strength, and soul? Or is that heart, soul, and uh, might? Or was that heart, mind, soul, strength, and understanding? Um, Father, it's all good. We, we want to love you with everything. With everything we are, with everything we have, because all that we are, we are by your grace. All that we have, we have by your grace. And we want to love you with all our grace. Father, uh, teach us what these things are about, our love for you, our love for our neighbor, how it is that we can... Um, exhibit that love in a biblically accurate way uh, how it is we can avoid the snares of what this world falsely calls love father which is really no love at all open the eyes of our understanding give us the application that we might glorify your son for it is in his name that we pray amen